Nathan, you're off on vacation this week, aren't you? Yes. Hey, blessings on that time with your family and extended family. We're so Thank glad you. you're here. Thank you. And you're part of uh, College Church. And Thank you. So grateful for your leadership of our worship arts ministry and for all of our musicians. You guys are awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, uh, I hope you've been enjoying, uh, this, is, this is week six, uh, these, these six weeks of this series called If I Could Tell You One Thing, where we've been able to hear from six different people as they share the, the white hot passion of their hearts with us. Um, it's been great to hear the gospel sung in six different keys over the past month and a half. Uh, this morning's really great because uh, our preacher this morning is a daughter of the congregation. She grew up at College Church, and, uh, and Jasmine Myers loves Jesus, and she's passionate about sharing him with others, and she does it through blogging, and she does it through theater, and this morning she's going to do it by opening God's word to us. So join me in welcoming Jasmine Myers. Thanks, Jasmine. Very nice to see you all this morning. Um, so a Sunday school teacher was talking to her class about Noah's Ark, um, and she was trying to get them engaged, and so she said, does anybody know what it is that's gray and has a bushy tail and likes to eat acorns? And the one little kid says, well, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. <laughs> the title of my sermon today is Jesus is Everything. So if you're in a hurry, you can go home now, because that's my one thing. Um, for the rest of you, I brought a book, don't worry. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch woman. Her family hid Jews during the Nazi occupation of Holland. Um, eventually, she and her family were arrested for their activities, and she was sent to a concentration camp with her older sister, Betsy. And she tells a story of what happened one time while they were in the concentration camp trying to minister to their fellow prisoners. Um, and she, she tells this interesting story about when a new batch of prisoners arrived from Czechoslovakia. And she says, one of them assigned to our platform had no blanket at all, and Betsy insisted that we give her one of ours. So that evening, I lent her a blanket, but I didn't give it to her. In my heart, I held on to the right to that blanket. Was it coincidence that joy and power imperceptibly drained from my ministry? This story came to mind while I was preparing because I think it's, it's um, an interesting thing that's going on there because she's not really sinning per se, is she? she? She hands over the blanket. She's intending to be obedient. But in her heart, she still holds on to the right to it. And don't we do that with our lives? We're not sinning per se. We're not living in sin. We're intending obedience and godly things but it's still my life and we're not even really using that as an excuse to sin but we're pretty convinced that we deserve a normal life I'll tithe but I have the right to do what I want to with the rest of my money I'll do Christian activities but I have a right to do what I want to with the rest of my time I'll give God time and things but I'm kind of inside waiting to see what I have left over for me. And isn't that kind of the problem that Cain ran into? Let's see if this, oh, it does work. <laughs> oh, oh good. 
So Genesis 4 talks about how Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil to God as an offering, while his brother brought fat portions from the best of his flock. And it says that God looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And as we all know, this is the setup for what turns out to be the first recorded murder in history. The jealousy that resulted from that is the setting of the first murder. Um, and the interesting thing is that Cain wasn't really sinning, per se, when he brought that offering. It doesn't even say that he gave, like, the bad fruit or the bruised fruit. It just says that he gave some. But Abel not only gave the best of what he get, had, he gave lifeblood. He understood that we're not called to give some. We're not even called to give all. We are called to give us. And the interesting thing is that who then is compared to Abel in the New Testament? It's not a squirrel. This time it really is Jesus. Um, but this time it's, this giving of lifeblood is happening in the other direction, isn't it? It's God giving lifeblood for man, not man giving lifeblood for God. So the, the verse that I want to talk about today is from 1 Corinthians, and it says, You are not your own, you were bought with a price. I think this is a verse that we really need to be paying attention to and remembering in America. But first, I want to talk about what it meant to the people it was originally said to, which was the Corinthian church. Um, now, Corinth was a port city in what is now Greece. It was situated on an isthmus. So it's got land up here, land down here, and this little bitty neck of land in between is where the city is. So it's got a harbor on each side. So all of the wealth and all of the promiscuity, all those things that you associate with port cities, were Corinth times two. It was a big center of sports. The Isthmian Games were held there. Um, another big pastime of theirs was oratory. They were used to picking apart speeches by flashy-looking guys. Thank you for not having the same standards. Um, so it was a place that was very convinced of its own importance, its own intelligence, and its right to do whatever the heck it wanted to. And that doesn't sound familiar at all. The church was a mess, thank God, because that's why Paul said so many useful things to them. We'd have learned a lot less if they weren't a mess. Um, it was a place where sexual ethics were kind of a new thing. There was a lot of competition for importance. Selfishness was taking the place of love. They had problems with divisions, with lawsuits between people in the church, with people fighting for their rights. Um, in previous verses, Paul actually quotes the Corinthians as saying, everything is permissible for me. I can do what I want to. And I would guess that for many of them, the message of grace had kind of fit a little bit too easily into their mindset. I think they probably heard the message of grace and said, great, God will forgive me. We're not supposed to depend on our own righteousness, so I can do whatever I want to. It's okay. So in a place where people are used to fighting for the right to do whatever they wanted, Paul starts talking about God's right to expect holiness. Multiple times in this passage, he bases that not on fear of punishment or on religious duty, both of which could have been valid things to base it on, but instead he bases it on what Jesus did and on the value God put on us. 
So earlier in this passage, he lists off this whole bunch of sins that separates people from God, and he ends it with, that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. By, we ta- by the time we get to this verse, he's actually making a case for sexual ethics. Um, and it's not, his case is not, this is what you need to do to be right with God. It's not, you have to do this because God says so. It's something much more loving and all-encompassing than that. It's, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Now, between you and me, I think this is probably the most romantic thing I've ever heard. Honestly, because isn't that what we're looking for in love? We're looking for somebody to give themselves fully to us, to whom we can be safe giving ourselves fully in return. It's no accident that Paul said this to a place that was struggling with sexual ethics, because this is true intimacy, that we're always seeking in a false way when we're having the same kind of problems that Corinth was having. The thing is, Christianity never claimed to be a philosophy or a code of how to do things. It claimed to be a story, more of a report, really, about a real person who, like Abel, gave lifeblood. If the report about Jesus is true, if he was a real human person who is now present and alive by his spirit, Well, then first of all, it's kind of rude for me to be talking about him in third person because he's right here. But more importantly, it's not a matter of following a philosophy enough. It's not a matter of how intensely into Christianity you are. Like, you know how you have those some friends who are really into Dungeons and Dragons and then some who just kind of dabble. It's not, that's not what's going on. It's a matter of a person who gave absolutely everything for us, standing in front of us and asking, so what are you going to do with me? Now, in America, we're not super different from Corinth, are we? We've, we've got our promiscuity problems, yes, but more importantly, we've got a lot in common in terms of arrogance and in terms of rights. Because... We're a country that's in control of a lot of what happens to us. We're in control of our agriculture. We're in control of a lot economically. Um, And we've also got a very big crisis of authority. In America, the buck stops with what I think. Our culture really hotly defends everybody's right to live by what works for them and define reality by what they think rather than defining what they think by reality. And unfortunately, that kind of mindset is seeping into the church. Um, But that kind of mindset is actually antithetical to Christianity and will lead us into heresy. Because yes, God gave us minds, and yes, God gave us the freedom to use them, but what we're being tempted to do these days is to judge God's word by the standard of ourselves and to judge whether or not God's word is right by what I think and feel is right. And I don't know about you, but I am definitely not smart enough to do that. When I am the ultimate authority, I'm worshiping me. And that is not Christianity. Uh, You'll often hear, I know people who live more Christian lives than Christians do. That is very nice, but that's not Christianity either. Because if I'm adopting principles because I like them, that still leaves me in charge. 
And it's not even love, is it? Because it's not accepting God on his own terms. If we're accepting principles while rejecting the authority behind them, we're still rejecting God. And honestly, I think that's part of why baptism is so important to what God commanded us to do when we became Christians. Because it's not just that I'm a great person deciding to adopt some principles that Jesus gave. It is me publicly declaring, I don't have what it takes, I do need Jesus, and I am going to die and be resurrected with him right now. So the bottom line for us in America is that we're, we're constantly told that we have a right to control our own life. Um, and also, we're not in a place where we're constantly forced to reckon with this fact that Jesus is everything, because we're not in a place where you're going to jail if you believe that. We're not in a place where you could lose your life if you believe that. Um, so there's nothing that's constantly making us make that decision like there is for some other people. Um, so it's kind of a spiritually dangerous place. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go somewhere else. I'm not saying that it's bad to live an ordinary life, because honestly, I don't know where God has called you. He may have called you to an ordinary life, but what I do know is that wherever he has called you, you will not be prepared to answer that call if you're holding on to your right to a normal life. So why is Jesus everything? Oh, let's, first of all, let's start with the way that he presented himself. He made a lot of tacit and not so tacit claims to divinity. Um, I wrote these down so that you can scribble them down if you want to. John 5 is where he kept calling God his father and his opponents got really upset because they said that would make you equal with God. Um, John 10 is where he said, I and the father are one, and that nearly got him stoned. Matthew 26 is where he was on trial and blatantly admitted to having said, I am the son of God. But more than that, he didn't couch that in some reinterpretation like, oh, yeah, but we're all God's children. No, he actually took it farther and said, yes, I am the son of God, and you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven. He also spoke with authority over the Torah. He didn't change the Torah, but he gave authoritative interpretation of it that was very different than a lot of the traditional interpretations had been. He spoke with authority when he was teaching in the synagogues, which also got people angry at him. He spoke with authority over sin and forgiveness and defended his right to do so, which, guess what, also got people mad at him. So clearly, he saw himself as being in authority and as being the son of God, which doesn't leave room for us to say, that's a really nice teaching. Either he was authoritative or he was really arrogant. A lot of times the way that this has been phrased in, in writings before is he was either a liar or a lunatic or Lord. You know, he was, he was unholy or unhinged or he was right. But, you know, throughout history, we've seen what it looks like when leaders are arrogant or unhinged or have an overinflated view of themselves. And it sure doesn't look like that. So by Jesus' own teaching... Jesus is everything, or he is nothing. He didn't leave us room for any other options. So a couple of other 
reasons to, to be thinking about this, um, reasons that Jesus is everything. He humbled himself for us. Philippians 2 has a wonderful hymn about how he laid aside his glory as God and came in human form, humbled himself for us. Um, Hebrews 12.2 talks about how we were worth it to him. Um, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You were the joy set before him. Wrap your mind around that. Um, it, he forgives us. He defends us. He heals shame and pain. But ultimately, he bought us with a price. The Bible repeatedly says that that is the basis of his glory. And it's also the basis of our obedience. So if this thing that we have believed is true, if the living creator God really did take on human form, live among us, willingly get betrayed and murdered, rose from the dead, and then said that that achieves reconciliation with him, not just for now, but forever, then that changes everything, doesn't it? Because this earthly reality is not our primary reality. We live in the light of heaven. The way that First Peter puts it is, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Um, I like to think of what Jesus did with death as, um, you know how in cartoons when somebody's running through a door that's too small for them and they just take out the whole wall with it? Death broke because Jesus was too big for us. So that is really reality-altering stuff. It is impossible to be a Christian and have a normal life because this reality is not normal. If God loves us that fully, then responding to the reality of his love has to take over our lives. So what does it mean in our lives for Jesus to be everything? Well, first of all, I don't know what it looks like for you because God's call on all of our lives is different. But it does mean something for each of us. And I think the first thing to think about that it means is there is nothing to be afraid of. I'm still, as an anxious person, working on that one a lot, which might be why I forgot to put it in the PowerPoint. <laughs> the next thing that it means is God's interests are my interests. There are a lot of stories of uh, people in the persecuted church having seemingly horrible things happen, being imprisoned, losing family members, and praising God for the opportunity that that gives them to share the gospel. There's a wonderful story from a pastor um, who wrote to Voice of the Martyrs and said, I want to thank you and thank all of the people who are associated with you for your prayers, but please stop praying for my release because I'm having such a fruitful ministry in here. Please stop praying for my release. What would it be like if we saw the things that happened to us as opportunities and not as burdens? What if panhandlers, or maybe this is the better test, what if telemarketers were not a nuisance, but an opportunity to show God's kindness to somebody? That might be the ultimate test of whether or not we really have a separation between the things that I do as ministry and the rest of my life where I've got to get stuff done? What if delays were a chance to be courteous in the face of stress? What if traffic was a chance to pray while you can't go do the things you meant to do? What if our intent in every situation was God's kingdom? It also means that we are free. 
We, we are so free. We don't have to hide our sin, first of all, um, because God's glory, God's grace is glorified when people see us forgiven and restored. Now, I kind of have a hard time with this one because I really don't want to reflect badly on God. Um, but the, the verse that I really continue to think of in, in regards to that is uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 4, 5. It says, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. It's not about me or my reputation. It's about Jesus. And that's the important part. It also means that we are free of other people's expectations. Our allegiance is to Jesus, not to what society or anybody else says we should be like. Sometimes society says good things about what we should be like, sometimes not so much, but it doesn't really matter what they think. It's what Jesus thinks. And you'll also find an, an odd thing about people's expectations is that when we're following Christ with everything we have, there can be a lot of pressure to not make people feel bad in comparison. But that's not really our responsibility either, is it? Our responsibility is to chase after him. That's all. So we are free from other people's expectations. And finally, it also means that we're not the ones making things happen, whether inside ourselves or outside ourselves. Back to Corey for a moment. She was reading the Bible to her fellow prisoners, and she came to the account of Paul's thorn in the flesh. Three times, he said, he had begged God to take away his weakness, whatever it was. And each time, God had said, rely on me. At last, Paul concluded, the words seemed to leap from the page, that his very weakness was something to give thanks for. Because now Paul knew that none of the wonders and miracles which followed his ministry could be due to his own virtues. It was all Christ's strength, never Paul's. And there it was. The truth blazed like sunlight in the shadows of Barracks 28. The real sin I had been committing was not that of inching toward the center of a platoon because I was cold. The real sin lay in thinking that any power to help and transform came from me. Of course it was not my wholeness, but Christ's that made the difference. I'm the type of person who really tries to make things happen. But when Jesus is everything, we don't have to make things happen. We can rejoice in the sovereignty of a good God. So I would probably get in trouble if I didn't give you some action points, so here we go. Um, but I have to first start with what I'm not saying because I know that there are people out there like me. So first of all, what I'm not saying, I am not saying that your life only matters to God if you're doing something dramatic like undergoing persecution or giving everything to the poor. I am not saying that you need to add more to your life, because again, oftentimes that's me adding things to my life to appease God and kind of resenting it and kind of hoping I have something left over afterwards. And sometimes what God actually asks us for is something a little bit embarrassing, like doing less. The command to the Sabbath is very hard for heroic people because there's no glory in taking a break. 
but it's what God said to rest and trust. I'm not saying that you need to go do foreign missions. You are strategically placed right where you are. God may call you to foreign missions or he may call you to stay here, but that is not the key. The point is whether or not you're following Jesus wherever he puts you. I am not saying that every opportunity is an opportunity specifically to hand out a gospel tract. That's not always what people need. I'm not saying that. I am not saying that you need to completely overhaul your life. And the reason I put this in here is because I know that there are people like me who when they hear something like this kind of go like, oh no, I'm doing everything wrong. I need to do everything better. I know you're already trying to follow Jesus. Don't worry. And I'm not saying that you always have to be on. Um, because once again, that's me making things happen, not trusting that Jesus is everything. So what am I saying? If, if the Bible is not asking us to do dramatic things, if it's not asking us to add more or be everything to everybody, what is God really asking of us? I think the answer uh, is super simple and Thankfully, Peter wrote it down for us. And it's just this. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Just decide now that he is Lord. Because deciding that firmly now is what prepares you in the moment to make choices that are in accordance with that. The other thing that I would say, and I almost preached the entire sermon just on this, is become convinced that God loves you. Because when we are convinced that the God of the universe loves us, then we don't have to be in control. We don't have to seek other ways to fulfill ourselves that are sinful. And we are enabled to love other people. So really, the key to the Christian life is knowing that God loves us. I, I asked a friend of mine, uh, who's much better at listening prayer than I am. How do you hear from God so well? And he thought about it for a sec, and he said, I guess I meditate on his love for me, and not just his love in the abstract, but his love for me personally. So become convinced that God loves you. Write out truth. Ask God how he feels about you. Invite God to renew your mind. Invite God into your broken places. There's, there's an exercise that I do with my actors when I'm working with actors, um, and I'm not going to make you do it because I'm not that mean. Um, but just imagine this for a sec. You're standing arm's length from somebody, and all you have to do is stare into their eyes and not say anything. People giggle a lot. Um, but eventually you calm down, and it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty scary exercise. Letting somebody look into your eyes for an extended period of time is really actually pretty scary. Um, but as they calm down, I ask them to think about the fact that when you do that, you're safe. Because that person is not trying to get anything from you. They're not telling you that you're doing something wrong. They're just there with you, looking into your eyes. So close your eyes for a minute and just imagine somebody looking into your eyes. And what I ask them to think about is the fact that that is what God does for us. He 
he looks straight at us and he doesn't say, you're doing it all wrong. He doesn't say, hey, your shoes, your shoes untied or anything like that. He just looks at us and accepts us right there where we are. So think about that for a minute and let God look into your eyes. Speaking of eyes, you can open them now. The last thing that I would say is to fix your eyes on Jesus. Think about him. Just just think about him. Make a habit of thinking about him. There are a lot of ways to do this. One of my favorite ones to do is writing, um, but there are a lot of ways to do this. Um, And the reason that this is so important is we're usually inclined to say, am I doing this right? Or do I have what it takes? Um, And that's kind of like preparing for a test by asking, have I studied? Instead of actually studying. Don't ask, am I doing this? Don't ask, do I have what it takes? Ask, why is he worth it? Think about him. That's what's really going to prepare you to follow him. Not thinking about yourself and whether or not you're doing it right. So in conclusion, this is real and it does change everything. The secret is it changes everything by his power and not by our efforts at being fervent enough. Jesus is everything and that's not just a challenge and a call, that's also our hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you are everything. Thank you so much that you gave your lifeblood for us and that we now get to participate in that through communion. Um, Lord, we just pray that you would be everything to us, that you would draw us more and more into this relationship with you, and we thank you so much for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Jasmine. Uh, Brennan, man.